Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. I have the incredible job of interviewing geniuses from around the world about the trend shaping the way we live and work. Today's interview is with Michael Kanan. He is the author of the book T-AI. Recently, Michael completed his role as the Director of Operations for the Department of Air Force MIT Artificial Intelligence Accelerator and is now the Chief of Staff of the U.S. Air Force Fellow at Harvard Kennedy School. In our discussion, we talk about device addiction, the digital divide, artificial intelligence, and the promise of a quantum world. The 12 Geniuses Futurist Friday episodes are brought to you exclusively by The Star Conspiracy. The Star Conspiracy is a B2B marketing agency for innovative brands creating the future of workplace solutions. Reach out at thestarconspiracy.com for more information or to schedule a chat with the team. Mike, welcome back to 12 Geniuses. Why don't you tell us what you've been doing since the last time you were on the show? Since the last time on the show, I'm currently the Director of Operations for the Department of the Air Force and MIT Artificial Intelligence Accelerator here on campus in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And we're about a, coming up to two years into that partnership, which has been, I think, really valuable. And in the course of the years from now, we'll look back at that partnership and experience as being important to emerging tech. And, and frankly, education in the Department of Defense. And I'll be heading off to the Harvard Kennedy School for a master's in public administration. What we want to know is what you're reading, what you're listening to, and what you would recommend for our listeners that they should pay attention to in order to be better prepared for the future. I'm always reading my personal sacred text, which is MIT Sloan Management Review. I think it's categorically the best content on the science and the studies of emerging practices. The digital edition is updated every day, while the print edition comes out quarterly. And it's my favorite piece of mail to receive outside of the impulse buy Amazon packages. Then, as a defense professional, I'm reading front lines of Russia and Ukraine news. There are a variety of sources I use for this. AI-enabled platforms like Dataminer provide my real-time alerts. And then I've particularly enjoyed CNN and 60 Minutes ground reporting lately, which uniquely, unlike any of the other outlets, has focused on the innovation of the battlefield by Ukraine and stories and interviews with their drone operators and the value this new generation of warfighters is bringing to the character of war. Uh, you know, speaking of 60 Minutes, it's almost like every other week has a technology and AI spin uh, brought to the public's attention. I really appreciate that. Um, of course, like Russia and Ukraine, I'm reading China news, which often ranges from the South China Morning Post to Australian intelligence organizations, by the way, they perform some of the best intelligence analysis, in my view, to our national think tanks like CSET out of Georgetown or CSIS for the deeper data-backed strategic implications. But just for everyday news, I'm going to AP, Reuters, Wall Street Journal, PBS, the big tech publications, and things like Reddit and Hacker News probably most often. Then as a citizen, um, our society is obviously changing around us. Whether you think it's a good idea or a bad one isn't really the point. Regardless, we should be informed. So I'm consistently reading court opinions and dissenting opinions on the topics that matter to me, like tech law, freedom of speech things, and other you know, largely hot button issues. I'm not reading necessarily just the news on the matter, but the briefs themselves. And I think taking the time to do that has been largely lost in society lately. And then lastly, in terms of books, I've been on a bit of a fiction kick lately, reading Brandon Sanderson and his Cosmere universe, but that's out of enjoyment. And I do genuinely believe fiction brings something special to the creative table. We should carve out some time for it. 
But in the nonfiction learning category, I've been reading quantum mechanics for years and currently in a second through Sean Carroll's Something Deeply Hidden and particularly the Many Worlds Theory of Quantum Behavior, which for our listeners means that every time there's a quantum event, a world splits off with everything in it the same, except in that other world, the quantum event didn't happen. It's a difficult topic to comprehend and requires a lot of dedicated thought and intentionality because definitionally, it just doesn't mirror our human experiences. But it's an exciting time to be in this field because it's not just about the math. It's about perception, consciousness. And there's a lot that can be brought to the table in high-level allegories to the phenomenon that we now understand much better. And this understanding matters for quantum computing, calibration, sensing, security, and all the things that are on the horizon. I hope society becomes curious and aware and doesn't retroactively look at it like we do on a lot of other emerging tech topics and trends. And ultimately, I enjoy using scientific laws and models as analogs to understand real-world experiences. I think any credible futurist or investor, for that matter, would agree to think that what you're reading outside of personal things as practice before the game. And ideally, you want to look for where and what game will be played to the best of your ability. Is there is there an author, if he or she writes a book or an article, you just won't miss? Sean Carroll, Brian Greene. Lately, there's a lot of arguments about artificial general intelligence and real or not, when will it happen? Uh, that's kind of brought out a lot of mature minds and, and leaders in the AI field, like Andrew Ng and others. Uh, so that's where, those are the groups of people I like seeing come out to the forefront when the topics come out. How do you evaluate these sources? Well, that's the big question. One we should probably look at uh, as our collective responsibility to do more often. I, I do try to keep this on the forefront of mind because I generally write a LinkedIn post on some event, largely tech things, literally every single night or morning before work on some article based off my Google alerts. So I think about three questions as I look at the news of the day. One, what is the purpose of the writing? With good writing, you should know that in the first paragraph or two, so judge accordingly. Who is the intended audience? This one you have to glean a little bit, but just thinking about it matters. And three, what are the conclusions and does the writing support the conclusion? With that in mind, You'll maybe do something like read the author's background, check what's cited, and consider what the bias is. And on that bias topic, it does generally come with a negative connotation, but bias is natural. To say something is unbiased is just pie-in-the-sky utopian dreams. Everything has a bias, and that's okay. I have a bias against olives or walking in front of a passing car at an intersection. The key point is to ask, what is the bias, and to what degree is it biased with all those other questions in mind. And personally, I'm consistently reading or listening to extremely biased views, which are generally the complete opposite views of my own. I spend more time on the other side of my personal views and news watching and reading than I do on the side I'd consider myself most aligned with. Uh, I think the limits of our language mean the limits of our world. This nation and opposing citizenry are to stand still simply because of this lack of communication. I think it's important uh, because it harkens back to not only searching for fact and truth, which is a real thing, or alternative facts are not facts, but in practice, it helps us communicate our viewpoints. What social trend are you exploring right now? 
Well, let's take, we'll take social media off the table, uh, but I'm exploring a lot about addiction right now and specifically addiction to devices, which I think is foundational to a number of concerns in society. So what do I mean? Well, in this interconnected world we live in now, validation is at our fingertips or in Maslow's hierarchy of needs terms, it's the entire pyramid and the top, pyramid, top of the pyramid of self-actualization all rolled up in one. And throughout humanity's history, these were building blocks. We couldn't reach out and find it readily right away. Psychologically, we couldn't release those chemicals so easily and so immediately. At the heart of it, when we talk colloquially about our addiction to devices, we're still talking about a human experience and endorphin release, and we become addicted to it. Then our lives become ruled by this addiction. Then the algorithms that run our world value it as a reward function. You know, seriously, the only reward function in IT business is still clicks and ads. Just look at Alphabet. More than 80%, and you could probably argue indirectly more, comes directly from Google ads of their revenue. That's it. So recursively, clicks are the business. Clicks are validation. And this all parlays into the myths, disinformation, and problems in society largely facing. It is still all a human experience. It's all still based on chemicals in the brain. Now, when we were prepping for this call or just before we started this call, you had mentioned the digital divide, and that would seem to be a social trend as well. So maybe you can comment on that. Yeah, recently I was a part of a hackathon for the city of Detroit, where, where I'm from, um, and the city of Indianapolis. And there are figures upwards of 40%, like in the city of Detroit, of, of people who don't have readily available internet access. Just imagine that. There are still vast troughs of our nation, whether they're rural or urban, that don't have readily available internet access. And that plays itself out in business opportunities and learning opportunities. And it also reminds us that there are some things that do you know, connect us more than necessarily divide us. Rural populations are dealing with a different character of the same problem as someone in an urban city. And we should communicate about that. I think it's an imperative of this nation to bridge the digital divide uh, sooner rather than later. It's not only a social need and good, but it's one for the uh, competitive positioning on the global stage. What new technology are you tracking? Now, you're an AI expert, and so we can talk about AI, but, uh, but I'm also curious to talk about another technology that you're interested in as well. Well, I will only br briefly touch on AI since it's what I do, and it'd probably be disingenuous not at least highlight it. But I will add some actual specificity instead of saying AI in air quotes. One, reinforcement learning which is the type of technique that enables an agent to learn in an interactive environment by trial and error using feedback from its own actions and experiences. You see these advances in games and they hold huge implications for robotics, medicine, and sequences of decision-making towards some outcome. The second are transformers, which is a neural network architecture that learns context and then can convey meaning by tracking relationships in sequential data, like for the sentences I'm speaking to you now. You see this as mattering for uh, language generation, content generation, and multimodal learning playing out in image generation, like with Dolly 2 most recently from OpenAI that just released and blending multiple phenomenologies like natural language, like computer vision, and it brings us to broader task capability as seen in DeepMind's Gato, 
which can perform numerous tasks across broader purposes. And it brings us a little bit out of our AI stovepipe discipline. So the democratization of the technology is something uh, anyone should be paying attention to. But circling back to the quantum point, that's what I'm watching. There's recent big news on the consistent push in quantum computing, which, you know, in all this clickbait headlines is really just quantum computers solving a giant mathematical equation to prove it's in an aligned quantum state and outperforms classical computers. It's all theory. There's really no real world implication behind the news that, you know, some quantum device obliterated conventional computers on some benchmark test. Uh, that said, it still matters in informing our pursuits. But in real terms of the technology, quantum for sensing, for calibration, for simulation, and security really interests me at the moment. Basically, the practicality of quantum is a really good space to be in right now. What do you mean? You mentioned a few things, security being one of them. What do you mean by that? Think of having no need for GPS because we can measure the Earth's magnetosphere. Huge implications for banking and your ATMs, which needs position navigation and timing. And of course, for myself, military warfighting, which relies on GPS for precision targeting. Or for medical devices to detect heartbeats. Uh, simulation in order to model molecular and chemical relationships for material sciences and medicines and vaccines. And then, of course, not only for uh, security for encryption concerns, but also to harden our own systems. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll share a little bit of a hot take here because there's a lot of blockchain-based ideas happening. There's the whole crypto community, um, but blockchain, Bitcoin, proof of work, all these things might just be poor person's quantum and a little bit like Laserdisc before DVDs and then obviously onto streaming. I'm not saying that there's not a real purpose and serious value in that technology, but commercialized quantum could change the name of that game. It's not easy, but we managed to deal with these ridiculously high temperature computer things in our daily life. We might figure out how to keep things really cold too. But like most technologies throughout history, especially lately, they come with a certain duality to them, just like a hammer we used to you know, drive in a nail or pull one out. It also could be used as a weapon. These technologies are no different than that. What do you see as the primary risks? Uh, I, I mean, it would seem obvious to me that whoever harnesses quantum can dominate the world. Quantum superiority is obviously a concern as a flashpoint when it occurs in practical application uh, for all of our security systems, security, cybersecurity probably being the one uh, field that needs the most attention uh, right now. Talk about it, but we're not developing a workforce for it. Companies aren't necessarily really truly embracing the reality and the concerns at hand. And we've seen this play out in solar winds attacks, uh, you know, hacks of our media companies and, and, and the rest. And um, that would be the biggest concern on the quantum front, let alone just like the technological sciences that you can advance. Being able to simulate, you know, graphene and, and materials we never could have done before in, in ways that, that are reproducible. And what do you see as the time frame for practical quantum to be available? Google just spun out Sandbox Quantum. You know, they did that for a reason from Alphabet, you know, still under big parent Alphabet somewhat, but 
I, th I think that's a signal to look at right now. Um, we're currently working on an open project in using alternative position navigation and timing that I mentioned earlier with the Earth's magnetosphere. There are real quantum implications with that, with quantum sensors as we speak right now. Quantum isn't just about the computing aspect, and that's something that people don't quite comprehend, right? There are other aspects of quantum applications that you don't necessarily need the, quote, quantum computer for. Um, so the ones that I mentioned, uh, you know, simulation, security, sensing, definitely, are, are on within this decade, if not a couple of years from now, horizon. I'm curious to know what's filling you with a sense of optimism. The simple truth that each generation is smarter than the last. The generations behind me inspire me, inspired by their empathy, inspired by their ability to coordinate. I think they're becoming engaged and inspired in public service. They're seeing the value in bright minds entering public service and the tumultuous nonsense all around us. Now it's our time to unleash empower and enable them uh, to step out of the way more often to let them lead, to better team the techniques of the old with the ideas of the new. Uh, I mean, I'll just give you a, a set of interesting facts on this one in closing here. The 117th United States Congress, facts. Seven senators are in their 80s, that's before World War II. 11 are over 75, that's older than the US Air Force. 25 are in their 70s, that's before Mr. Potato Head. 53 members are over 65, that's a majority. 13 Congress people are in their 80s. That's before the first electronic, electronic programmable computer. 29 are over 75. That's before the first working transistor. 70 are in their 70s. That's when average rent in the nation was about 80 bucks. 149 members are over 65. That's a decade before Roe v. Wade. The median age of Congress is 60. The median age of the United States is 38. And I use this example just because it's visceral, interpret the reality as you please, but I'm, I, I am full of optimism for the next generation, including my own, to assume the mantle and hopefully to be welcomed and empowered to do so. And I think we're slowly starting to see that change. Any final advice you have for leaders to help them become more visionary or forward thinking? It's cliche, but learning is a lifetime sport. Read what you're not used to reading. I, I love picking up something from another discipline and realizing that it's relevant to a real world experience that I'm having right now, or hearing an alternative point of view and know how to communicate that view, empathize, or better communicate your own to change a mind. Mike, I could talk to you for hours. I'm really excited to continue to follow your work on LinkedIn, which is awesome. Thank you for all of, all of what you post. Uh, thanks for your time today and thank you for being a genius. Thank you, Don. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses and thank you again to The Star Conspiracy for sponsoring our Summertime Futurist Friday series. We will be back next week with Ufuk Turhan, a futurist who will join us from Istanbul. Thank you to Richard, Jonathan, Jay, Tony, and the rest of the team at GL Pro in London for producing this show. To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com. Thanks for listening, and thank you for being a genius.